You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Our scripture this morning is Acts 18, verses 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we have gathered here this morning to hear from you. It is not our desire to hear the opinion of any man. We believe that you have spoken to us and you continue to speak to us through your word, by your spirit, for the glory of your son. And so, Father, we ask that this would happen, that as we open the word and consider what you have revealed to us, that we would hear your voice that our faith would be deepened, that some would be comforted, that some would be convicted, but that all of us would be changed. We pray this in the strong name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The reign of Queen Mary I also known as Bloody Mary, only lasted from 1553 to 1558. Yet during that fairly short time, Protestants were severely persecuted. In fact, historians tell us that at least 300 Protestants were burned at the stake during this time. This morning, I want to tell you about just two of these English reformers. One was known for his preaching and the other for his scholarship. The preacher's name was Hugh Latimer, 
And the scholar was a man named Nicholas Ridley. On October 16th, 1555, after spending 18 months in a tower cell, Latimer and Ridley met at an Oxford stake. With Latimer in a frock and cap and Ridley in his bishop's gown, the two men talked and prayed together before they were fastened to the stake where they would burn. Ridley spoke up first. In an effort to strengthen his friend, he said, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. As the bundle of sticks caught fire beneath them, Latimer then began to speak. Raising his voice so Ridley could hear, he cried, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. In the face of persecution to the point of death, like so many other heroic believers, Latimer and Ridley did not remain silent. And through their bold witness, God did a miraculous work of reformation and revival. You see, friends, in every age, God has caused his gospel to spread, and he has done this through a variety of means. Sometimes it's through tremendous suffering. In fact, it's often through tremendous suffering. But it's also in other ways we We've seen this in the first 17 chapters of the book of Acts, haven't we? As the early church continues to face opposition, the power of God is displayed. He uses his people to spread his gospel to the ends of the earth. As we launch into chapter 18, I want you to see two ways the gospel spreads. Not the only two ways. But I want you to see two ways the gospel spreads. And I believe both of these will be very instructive and challenging to us. First, the gospel spread through the resourcefulness of ordinary Christians. The gospel spread through the resourcefulness of ordinary Christians. We see this in the first four verses. Let me read them again. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. On the heels of a very challenging time of gospel ministry in Athens, Paul travels about 50 miles to an influential Roman colony named Corinth, a place known for cultural influence, but but also for rampant immorality. In fact, Paul will later say in a letter to the Corinthian church that he arrived in Corinth in weakness and fear and much trembling. 
friends, this is good for us to remember. The servants of Christ that we read about in Acts battled all the same emotions and feelings that we do. They, they didn't arrive in new cities with capes on. Ready to boldly confront wickedness, topple false gods, and fight opponents of Jesus without ever being scared or feeling vulnerable. Now, Paul arrived in a new place, and the text tells us that he was afraid. He felt weak. He experienced all the physical and emotional symptoms of someone who was frightened by the task that God had called him to. So we rightly think of Acts as a book cataloging the acts of the Holy Spirit in the early church. But don't forget that this book also catalogs the acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of ordinary Christians. Real people like you and me who needed to be empowered and emboldened by the indwelling Holy Spirit. So we don't just see the work of the Holy Spirit when 3,000 people come to faith in Christ, but we also see the work of the Holy Spirit when someone like Paul doesn't give up and run away in fear when he's faced with opposition and difficulty. Brothers and sisters, as we study the book of Acts together, if you're being convicted about sharing your faith, or being pushed to engage in discipling relationships, or, or you've been challenged about boldness in your witness for Jesus, don't. Don't walk out of here thinking that you just need to suck it up, clench your fists, grit your teeth, and do better. No, walk out of here more deeply dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God to accomplish in you what you cannot do for yourself. Let your confidence be in God. It's one of the lessons we take from this book and this text. He will strengthen you. He will sustain you. Now, I might be wrong about this, but I think one of the ways the devil has had great success in the present day evangelical church, churches like ours, is by influencing us to think unbiblically about the work of the Holy Spirit. And he does it in a very particular way. Here's what I think is happening. If you're a church that's building new buildings, baptizing hundreds of people every Easter, if your worship services make you physically and emotionally feel a certain way, then the Holy Spirit is active in your church. But if members of your church are just increasing in love toward one another, getting more engaged in serving the body of Christ, slowly growing in their gospel boldness, if people who have struggled with sin for years are finally opening up and getting help, if believers are becoming more generous, you see, none of these things garner public attention and put you on Outreach Magazine's list of fastest-growing churches. 
But brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Be encouraged by the thousands of ways the Holy Spirit is working in undeniable power. In ways that most people don't notice or might not notice for quite some time. But these are the things we see happening all throughout the book of Acts. This is what we find in our text this morning. The text tells us that Paul arrives in Corinth and meets a Jewish couple named Priscilla and Aquila. A couple that Paul will mention later in Romans 16 as, quote, fellow workers in Christ Jesus who had risked their lives. What Luke highlights here about Priscilla and Aquila is not just their hospitality, which interestingly is a work of the Spirit, isn't it? But look at verse 3. Paul was of the same trade with them, for they were tent makers by trade. So here are three people that share the same faith and the same trade. Now, why? Why does the text mention this? Is it simply an interesting tidbit? Is Luke just offering unnecessary details because that's what Luke does? It's just his style of writing. Well, here's what I I think is happening. I believe there's something important and instructive for us here, and it ties into what I've already mentioned. Friends, the initial spread of the gospel didn't happen by means of professional pastors and theologians. God used a variety of means and a variety of people. The Spirit moved in the hearts of normal Christians to do whatever they could to make Christ known and to see the gospel spread. Here's what I mean. In 1 Corinthians 9 and Galatians 6, Paul insists that the church meet the material needs of its teachers. But... Personally, Paul was also willing to forego that right to offer God's grace free of charge. And here's why this is so important in Corinth. Listen to Dennis Johnson explain. Unlike the sophists and other professional orators, Paul refused to make his audience pay for his announcement of God's free gift. Instead, Paul supported himself and his team by hard work, providing an example of responsibility and generosity. Brothers and sisters, I want you to grasp what's happening here. First, we have Paul who wants to make sure he doesn't compromise the gospel message in any way at all. So he's forced to be very resourceful. He figures out a way to make enough money to go where God is calling him to go and do what God is calling him to do. And he's willing to work hard and work with his hands rather than create confusion around the gospel he's declaring. But it's not just Paul who's resourceful. It's also Priscilla and Aquila. Bible historians tell us that Priscilla and Aquila were were very mobile people for this time moving from Rome to Corinth in response to an imperial edict, but then later moving from Corinth to Ephesus. And do you know that every time Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in Scripture, they're opening their home to someone? You see, the gospel is spreading 
in a most unexpected way. By an itinerant tent-making preacher named Paul and a very hospitable tent-making couple named Priscilla and Aquila. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Hospitality and hard work. And notice how this team worked together, verses 3 and 4 again. And because Paul was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So they all worked during the week. Priscilla and Aquila graciously housing Paul. And then every Sabbath, Paul would go to the synagogue and he would try to persuade Jews and Greeks to put their faith in Christ. Here's what I thought as I studied these first four verses of chapter 18. God uses unconventional means to make Christ known and to build his church. God is not used the same cookie-cutter formula to build his church throughout the centuries and around the world. Now, it has always been the same gospel. And it's always been the result of the Holy Spirit's miraculous work. And it's always involved the opening and explaining of the Word of God. But from the very beginning, God has used normal believers who are passionate about seeing sinners repent and believe and who are willing to be resourceful in the way they go about serving Christ in His church. Friends, let me challenge you to think outside the box. Let me challenge you to consider how the Holy Spirit might use your unique talents and experiences For the sake of Christ, how might he use your time, energy, and possessions for the spread of the gospel? There's an unhealthy mindset amongst many Christians that says the gospel ministry is for the professionals, those who have been trained, those who have gone to seminary. Oh, friends, our study through the book of Acts should should have corrected that thinking by now. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. I have some friends in North Carolina who begin asking these questions. They begin asking God to show them how they could show the love of Jesus to people in their community. And ultimately, God led them to begin opening up their home to women in crisis. And from this, a ministry was birthed called the Welcome Mission. Motivated to show hurting women the love of Christ, the Welcome Mission now supplies women with a home to live in free of charge, helps them get on their feet to live independently as productive members of society. They help women obtain jobs, childcare, education, but all of this is motivated by the love of Christ, and it started by just opening up their home to one woman in crisis. This is what they thought. We have a house and we want to show the love of Christ. Let's pray that God would provide an opportunity. And he did, and he keeps doing this. What God is doing through the Welcome Mission is remarkable. 
And God may very well be calling some of you to do something similar, but the Holy Spirit also can use your ability to, to work with your hands like Tim and Sue Bro, or to help manage finances like Paul Gustafson, or to greet visitors and connect them to others like Mike Flom. Brothers and sisters, this is the work of God by His Spirit through resourceful Christians who simply have a desire to make a gospel impact in the lives of real people. God has called every believer to be engaged in using the resources they have for His glory and the good of others. The gospel spread through the resourcefulness of ordinary Christians. Second, notice something we've seen again many times throughout our study of Acts. And here's the second main observation this morning. The gospel spread through the boldness of ordinary Christians. We see this in verses 5 through 11. There is nothing surprising about what we find recorded in verse 5. It's precisely what we've seen over and over again. Servants of Christ declaring the gospel of Christ to those who stand in desperate need of Christ. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. It's a great phrase. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Before Silas and Timothy arrived in Corinth, Paul was spending most days tent-making, but he was preaching Christ in the synagogue every Sabbath. The way our text summarizes Paul's ministry in Corinth is to use that phrase, occupied with the word, or we could say as one theological reference tool puts it, he was wholly absorbed in preaching. And what is it? that he was preaching. What was his message? Look at the end of verse 5. Testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. In fact, brothers and sisters, this is how Paul described his ministry in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, and, when, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is what he was doing. This was his ministry. Declare Jesus Christ. Paul's task was not to be impressive by worldly standards. His aim was not to display his intellect or wow audiences with his rhetorical prowess. No, Paul had one clear desire to present the good news concerning Jesus, to lay before his audience the reality that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the one sent by God to save his people from their sins. Paul's deepest desire was to see sinners turn to Christ in repentance and faith. That's why the text describes his efforts in verse 4 as trying to persuade. This was an urgent appeal to sinners to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord. To bow in humility before the true King of heaven. 
the risen and victorious Christ. Now, what was the response of the Jews in particular? Look at verse 6. They opposed and reviled him. They opposed and reviled him. As we've seen so many times already, the gospel was rejected by the very people Jesus came to save. He came to his own and his own received him not. In case we are tempted to overlook the seriousness of this rejection, notice how the text describes Paul's response. It makes clear the profound tragedy that has taken place. Verse 6. He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Friends, this gesture by Paul is a sign of judgment. As he has patiently and faithfully pleaded with these Jews to believe in Christ, unveiling the majesty of Christ throughout the Old Testament scriptures, in response, these unbelieving Jews have not only rejected the gospel of Christ, but they have mocked and reviled the messenger of Christ as well. So Paul does something startling. It's similar to what he did back in chapter 13, but, but notice the text again. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. The act of shaking off his garment was to make sure, as one theologian wrote, that not one speck of dust from the synagogue would adhere to him. Paul is saying, I've done everything I can, and no matter what I've tried, you have arrogantly and frighteningly rejected Jesus, and so I'm done. In essence, Paul is giving them what they want. If they want to reject Jesus, then they will receive his righteous judgment. Their blood will be on their own heads. Their eternal judgment before a holy God and their eternal torment will be their own choice. Brothers and sisters, this is so sad. But this is the heartbreaking reality for all who reject Christ. If they die in their rebellion, they will have no one to blame but themselves. Friend, if you're here this morning and you have never trusted Christ, you've never turned from your sin and guilt, believing that through Jesus' death and resurrection, you can have peace with God, I would beg you, as Paul begged the Jews gathered in the synagogue, believe and receive Jesus Christ. He loves you and he gave himself for you. He will forgive your sin and he will make you new. Don't reject him. Don't walk away. The 
rejection of the Jews turns Paul again to the Gentiles and it sends him from the synagogue to a house next door. Look at verse 7. And remember that rejection never derails God's mission. It only redirects it. Verse 7, and he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Refusal and reviling gives way to success and fruitfulness. How often does God work in ways we don't expect? This is yet another reminder that we should never lose hope. Even when our circumstances seem hopeless, God is sovereign and he is good. He will sustain his people and he will grow his church and nothing can stop this. The gospel is rejected and God directs Paul next door where he has fruitful ministry prepared. I have to believe that many of you, friends, find yourselves in a place like Paul here of confusion and fear. Whether that's related to a strained relationship, uncertainty about the future, financial stress, unexpected illness, Or maybe you find yourself regularly overcome with fear about what's happening in the world socially and politically. Friend, let our text serve you this morning. Be encouraged as you see God's good hand in the circumstances of Paul. In the midst of his fear and confusion, God meets him with sufficient Grace in a very particular way. So Paul has experienced rejection and reviling. He's experienced some fruitfulness in ministry. But obviously, there's still some struggle with fear. Because look at what we find in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. God speaks to Paul by means of a vision, and his words combine a sweet rebuke, a stirring mandate, and a strong promise. The sweet rebuke is this. Do not be afraid. Again, think about all the factors that would have led Paul to battle fear. Uh, There was the obvious fear that he would personally suffer physical harm again. Certainly, he would have feared the safety of his brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Most of them knew in their faith. Paul may have also feared for the spiritual stability of the early churches felt some anxiety about leaving them and moving on too early. He would have wondered, should should I stay longer 
longer? Is it time to go? How do I interpret my circumstances here? Can you see how fear may have been pressing in on Paul? And so what happens? Well, the gentle shepherd appears to him in a vision and reminds him of something he already knows. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The Lord offers this sweet rebuke, but also a stirring mandate. Go on speaking and don't be silent. Now, brothers and sisters, connect this statement with the one that came right before. Paul was battling fear. Surely some of his fear was for the safety of the new believers he's come to deeply love. And if I was the devil, here's one way I would attack Paul in this situation. I would want to convince him that if he would just shut up about the gospel, then all his problems would go away. Everybody would be safe. There would be no reason to fear. Just be quiet and everything will be okay. Friends, this is how the devil works. One of his chief goals is to keep Christians from speaking up. To keep them from declaring the good news concerning Jesus. To keep them from sharing with their friends and neighbors how their own lives have been radically changed by Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the evil one wants you to cower in fear as the culture around you slides toward hell. And he wants to convince you that sharing Christ is not only a fool's errand, but it only causes you and the people you care about unnecessary suffering. So it'll be easier for everyone if you just stay quiet. Redeemer family, hear the words of Jesus this morning. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Why? And how? Say, but I'm afraid. Well, here's the strong promise. Look at verse 10. I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, For I have many in the city who are my people. I I love this. This is what my brother calls making sure your sermon application goes three layers deep. I thought it was something he came up with, but he stole it from Jesus, who does it perfectly here. Jesus begins by pointing out a wrong behavior that Paul must stop. And then he tells Paul the right behavior he must begin. But to avoid mere behavior modification, Jesus moves to a third layer. And that's the layer of motivation. This is where he deals with Paul's heart. What is it that motivates this change in behavior? What will drive out fear? And give Paul boldness to keep speaking up. It's this, the promise of Jesus. 
I'm with you. I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. What could be more motivating than this? These are heart-transforming truths. The presence of Jesus, I am with you. The protection of Jesus, no one will harm you. And the power of Jesus, I have many in this city who are my people. Oh, brothers and sisters, when you're facing fear, especially as it relates to your witness for Christ, when you're tempted in the face of increasing cultural pressure and mounting opposition to just keep quiet about Jesus, remember his words. I am with you. I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. There is so much that could be said about verse 10, but I want you to hear what John Stott wrote in reference to the final phrase of verse 10. For I have many in this city who are my people. Stott writes, Jesus promised Paul protection because... Many people in Corinth were Jesus' property. Given to him by the Father. Therefore, no one could stop them from hearing Christ's life-giving voice as he laid claim to their hearts through Paul's gospel. Friends, in our fear and confusion, as we are tempted to remain silent in our gospel witness, we need to be reminded that there are people in our neighborhoods and workplaces, people who are lost in sin at this very moment, blinded to the beauty of Christ, and yet they are already Jesus' possession. They're already his, given to him by the Father. And the means by which God has sovereignly and kindly chosen to bring them to faith in Christ is through the feeble and frail witness of people like you and me. But we cannot and we must not be silent. After the gracious intervention of Jesus, notice verse 11, I read it before. And he stayed a year and six months. Well, of course he did. Teaching the word of God after he had been emboldened and empowered by Jesus, he stayed. What is it that moved Paul from fear and trembling to a boldness in teaching the word of God for another year and a half? in this very difficult place. To go back to the beginning, did he simply suck it up, clench his fist, grit his teeth, and resolve, I'm going to be a stronger and better follower of Jesus. 
No, brothers and sisters, what moved Paul from trembling to boldness is what sustained Ridley and Latimer as they faced the flames of martyrdom. It is the sure promise of Christ's sustaining presence. So let me offer you this as we close. Consider again the words of Jesus in verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. Friends, this is a staggeringly wonderful reminder. I want to encourage you to hear the words of the risen Lord. Do not be afraid as more comforting than confrontational. I don't think this is the angry father who's fed up with a child and yells at him, stop being afraid. No, this is the loving father who crawls into bed with his young son during a thunderstorm puts his strong arm around his boy and whispers, Son, don't be afraid. I'm right here. And I won't leave you. You see, it's this reality that sustains a child of God in the most fearful and uncertain of circumstances. So hear the words of Jesus. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take your word by your spirit, plant it deep in our hearts and cause it to bear fruit. For the one who is here this morning, who's battling fear and confusion in a variety of ways, but maybe in particular as it relates to talking to someone about Christ. Father, would you remind them by means of your word? That Jesus has promised them, I will be with you. I will not leave you. And that we would remember that we are indestructible. Under your sovereign hand as you have chosen to use us for your purposes. Father, fill our hearts with faith. Drive out fear. Push us to be resourceful and to be bold so that we might engage in this great redemptive work that you have been and are doing. 
of glorifying your name, of building your church, causing the gospel to spread to the ends of the earth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, this morning we will come to the Lord's table together. We will take of the bread and the cup. We will think deeply about Christ's broken body and his shed blood. Living, helping, keeping, loving, scripture this morning is Acts 18 verses 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. 
Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we have gathered here this morning to hear from you. It is not our desire to hear the opinion of any man. We believe that you have spoken to us and you continue to speak to us through your word, by your spirit, for the glory of your son. And so, Father, we ask that this would happen. That as we open the word and consider what you have revealed to us, that we would hear your voice. That our faith would be deepened. That some would be comforted. That some would be convicted. But that all of us would be changed. We pray this in the strong name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The reign of Queen Mary I, also known as Bloody Mary, only lasted from 1553 to 1558. Yet during that fairly short time, Protestants were severely persecuted. In fact, historians tell us that at least 300 Protestants were burned at the stake during this time. This morning, I want to tell you about just two of these English reformers. One was known for his preaching and the other for his scholarship. The preacher's name was Hugh Latimer, and the scholar was a man named Nicholas Ridley. On October 16, 1555, after spending 18 months in a tower cell, Latimer and Ridley met at an Oxford stake with Latimer in a frock and cap and Ridley in his bishop's gown, the two men talked and prayed together before they were fastened to the stake where they would burn. Ridley spoke up first. In an effort to strengthen his friend, he said, Be of good heart, brother. For God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. As the bundle of sticks caught fire beneath them, Latimer then began to speak. Raising his voice so Ridley could hear, he cried, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust 
shall never be put out. In the face of persecution to the point of death, like so many other heroic believers, Latimer and Ridley did not remain silent. And through their bold witness, God did a miraculous work of reformation and revival. You see, friends, in every age, God has caused his gospel to spread, and he has done this through a variety of means. Sometimes it's through tremendous suffering. In fact, it's often through tremendous suffering. But it's also in other ways. We, we've seen this in the first 17 chapters of the book of Acts, haven't we? As the early church continues to face opposition, the power of God is displayed. He uses his people to spread his gospel to the ends of the earth. As we launch into chapter 18, I want you to see two ways the gospel spreads. Not the only two ways, but I want you to see two ways the gospel spreads. And I believe both of these will be very instructive and challenging to us. First, the gospel spread through the resourcefulness of ordinary Christians. The gospel spread through the resourcefulness of ordinary Christians. We see this in the first four verses. Let me read them again. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. On the heels of a very challenging time of gospel ministry in Athens, Paul travels about 50 miles to an influential Roman colony named Corinth place known for cultural influence, but, but also for rampant immorality. In fact, Paul will later say in a letter to the Corinthian church that he arrived in Corinth in weakness and fear and much trembling. Friends, this is good for us to remember. The servants of Christ that we read about in Acts battled all the same emotions and feelings that we do. They, they didn't arrive in new cities with capes on. Ready to boldly confront wickedness, topple false gods, and fight opponents of Jesus without ever being scared or feeling vulnerable. Now, Paul arrived in a new place, and the text tells us that he was afraid. He felt weak. He experienced all the physical and emotional symptoms of someone who was frightened by the task that God had called him to. So we rightly think of Acts as a book cataloging the acts of the Holy Spirit in the early church. But don't forget that this book also catalogs the acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of ordinary Christians. Real people like you and 
me who needed to be empowered and emboldened by the indwelling Holy Spirit. So we don't just see the work of the Holy Spirit when 3,000 people come to faith in Christ, but we also see the work of the Holy Spirit when someone like Paul doesn't give up and run away in fear when he's faced with opposition and difficulty. Brothers and sisters, as we study the book of Acts together, if you're being convicted about sharing your faith or being pushed to engage in discipling relationships or, or you've been challenged about boldness in your witness for Jesus, don't. Don't walk out of here thinking that you just need to suck it up, clench your fists, grit your teeth, and do better. No, walk out of here more deeply dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God to accomplish in you what you cannot do for yourself. Let your confidence be in God. It's one of the lessons we take from this book and this text. He will strengthen you. He will sustain you. Now, I might be wrong about this, but I think one of the ways the devil has had great success in the present-day evangelical church, churches like ours, is by influencing us to think unbiblically about the work of the Holy Spirit. And he does it in a very particular way. Here's what I think is happening. If you're a church that's building new buildings, baptizing hundreds of people every Easter, if your worship services make you physically and emotionally feel a certain way, then the Holy Spirit is active in your church. But if members of your church are just increasing in love toward one another, getting more engaged in serving the body of Christ, slowly growing in their gospel boldness, if people who have struggled with sin for years are finally opening up and getting help, if believers are becoming more generous, you see, none of these things garner public attention and put you on Outreach Magazine's list of fastest-growing churches. But brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Be encouraged by the thousands of ways the Holy Spirit is working in undeniable power. In ways that most people don't notice or might not notice for quite some time. But these are the things we see happening all throughout the book of Acts. This is what we find in our text this morning. The text tells us that Paul arrives in Corinth and meets a Jewish couple named Priscilla and Aquila. A couple that Paul will mention later in Romans 16 as, quote, fellow workers in Christ Jesus who had risked their lives. What Luke highlights here about Priscilla and Aquila is not just their hospitality, which interestingly is a work of the Spirit, isn't it? But look at verse 3. Paul was of the same trade with them, 
for they were tent makers by trade. So here are three people that share the same faith and the same trade. Now, why? Why does the text mention this? Is it simply an interesting tidbit? Is Luke just offering unnecessary details because that's what Luke does? It's just his style of writing. Well, here's what I I think is happening. I believe there's something important and instructive for us here, and it ties into what I've already mentioned. Friends, the initial spread of the gospel didn't happen by means of professional pastors and theologians. God used a variety of means and a variety of people. The Spirit moved in the hearts of normal Christians to do whatever they could to make Christ known and to see the gospel spread. Here's what I mean. In 1 Corinthians 9 and Galatians 6, Paul insists that the church meet the material needs of its teachers. But personally, Paul was also willing to forego that right to offer God's grace free of charge. And here's why this is so important in Corinth. Listen to Dennis Johnson explain. Unlike the sophists and other professional orators, Paul refused to make his audience pay for his announcement of God's free gift. Instead, Paul supported himself and his team by hard work, providing an example of responsibility and generosity. Brothers and sisters, I want you to grasp what's happening here. First, we have Paul, who wants to make sure he doesn't compromise the gospel message in any way at all, so he's forced to be very resourceful. He figures out a way to make enough money to go where God is calling him to go and do what God is calling him to do, and he's willing to work hard and work with his hands rather than create confusion around the gospel he's declaring. But it's not just Paul who's resourceful. It's also Priscilla and Aquila. Bible historians tell us that Priscilla and Aquila were were very mobile people for this time, moving from Rome to Corinth in response to an imperial edict, but then later moving from Corinth to Ephesus. And do you know that every time Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in Scripture, they're opening their home to someone? You see, the gospel is spreading in a most unexpected way. By an itinerant, tent-making preacher named Paul and a very hospitable tent-making couple named Priscilla and Aquila. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Hospitality and hard work. And notice how this team worked together, verses 3 and 4 again. And because Paul was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So they all worked during the week, Priscilla and Aquila graciously housing Paul. And then every Sabbath, Paul would go to the synagogue and he would try to persuade Jews and Greeks to put their faith in Christ. Here's what I thought as I studied these first four verses of chapter 18. 
God uses unconventional means to make Christ known and to build his church. God has not used the same cookie-cutter formula to build his church throughout the centuries and around the world. Now, it has always been the same gospel. And it's always been the result of the Holy Spirit's miraculous work. And it's always involved the opening and explaining of the word of God. But from the very beginning, God has used normal believers who are passionate about seeing sinners repent and believe and who are willing to be resourceful in the way they go about serving Christ in his church. Friends, let me challenge you to think outside the box. Let me challenge you to consider how the Holy Spirit might use your unique talents and experiences for the sake of Christ. How might he use your time, energy, and possessions for the spread of the gospel? There's an unhealthy mindset amongst many Christians that says the gospel ministry is for the professionals, those who have been trained, those who have gone to seminary. Oh, friends, our study through the book of Acts should, should have corrected that thinking by now. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. I have some friends in North Carolina who begin asking these questions. They begin asking God to show them how they could show the love of Jesus to people in their community. And ultimately, God led them to begin opening up their home to women in crisis. And from this, a ministry was birthed called the Welcome Mission. Motivated to show hurting women the love of Christ, the Welcome Mission now supplies women with a home to live in free of charge helps them get on their feet to live independently as productive members of society. They help women obtain jobs, childcare, education. But all of this is motivated by the love of Christ. And it started by just opening up their home to one woman in crisis. This is what they thought. We have a house. And we want to show the love of Christ. Let's pray that God would provide an opportunity. And he did, and he keeps doing this. What God is doing through the welcome mission is remarkable. And God may very well be calling some of you to do something similar, but the Holy Spirit also can use your ability to, to work with your hands like Tim and Sue Bro, Or to help manage finances like Paul Gustafson. Or to greet visitors and connect them to others like Mike Flom. Brothers and sisters, this is the work of God by His Spirit through resourceful Christians who simply have a desire to make a gospel impact in the lives of real people. God has called every believer to be engaged in using the resources they have for his glory and the good of others. The gospel spread through the resourcefulness of ordinary Christians. Second, notice something we've seen, again, many times throughout our study of Acts. And here's 
The second main observation this morning, the gospel spread through the boldness of ordinary Christians. We see this in verses 5 through 11. There is nothing surprising about what we find recorded in verse 5. It's precisely what we've seen over and over again. Servants of Christ declaring the gospel of Christ to those who stand in desperate need of Christ. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. It's a great phrase. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Before Silas and Timothy arrived in Corinth, Paul was spending most days tent making, but he was preaching Christ in the synagogue every Sabbath. The way our text summarizes Paul's ministry in Corinth is to use that phrase, occupied with the word, or we could say as one theological reference tool puts it, he was wholly absorbed in preaching. And what is it that he was preaching? What was his message? Look at the end of verse 5 testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. In fact, brothers and sisters, this is how Paul described his ministry in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, and, when, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is what he was doing. This was his ministry. Declare Jesus Christ. Paul's task was not to be impressive by worldly standards. His aim was not to display his intellect or wow audiences with his rhetorical prowess. No, Paul had one clear desire to present the good news concerning Jesus to lay before his audience the reality that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the one sent by God to save his people from their sins. Paul's deepest desire was to see sinners turn to Christ in repentance and faith. That's why the text describes his efforts in verse 4 as trying to persuade. This was an urgent appeal to sinners to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord bow in humility before the true King of Heaven, the risen and victorious Christ. Now, what was the response of the Jews in particular? Look at verse 6. They opposed and reviled him. They opposed and reviled him. As we've seen so many times already, the gospel was rejected by the very people Jesus came to save. He came to his own, and his own received him not. In a case we are tempted to overlook the seriousness of this rejection, notice how the text describes Paul's response. It makes clear the profound tragedy that has taken place. Verse 6. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. 
Friends, this gesture by Paul is a sign of judgment. As he has patiently and faithfully pleaded with these Jews to believe in Christ, unveiling the majesty of Christ throughout the Old Testament scriptures, in response, these unbelieving Jews have not only rejected the gospel of Christ, but they have mocked and reviled the messenger of Christ as well. So Paul does something startling. It's similar to what he did back in chapter 13, but but notice the text again. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. The act of shaking off his garment was to make sure, as one theologian wrote, that not one speck of dust from the synagogue would adhere to him. Paul is saying, I've done everything I can, and no matter what I've tried, you have arrogantly and frighteningly rejected Jesus, and so I'm done. In essence, Paul is giving them what they want. If they want to reject Jesus, then they will receive his righteous judgment. Their blood will be on their own heads. Their eternal judgment before a holy God and their eternal torment will be their own choice. Brothers and sisters, this is so sad. But this is the heartbreaking reality for all who reject Christ. If they die in their rebellion, they will have no one to blame but themselves. Friend, if you're here this morning and you have never trusted Christ, you've never turned from your sin and guilt, believing that through Jesus' death and resurrection, you can have peace with God, I would beg you, as Paul begged the Jews gathered in the synagogue, believe and receive Jesus Christ. He loves you and he gave himself for you. He will forgive your sin and he will make you new. Don't reject him. Don't walk away. The rejection of the Jews turns Paul again to the Gentiles, and it sends him from the synagogue to a house next door. Look at verse 7. And remember that rejection never derails God's mission. It only redirects it. Verse 7, and he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Refusal and reviling gives way to success and fruitfulness. How often does God work in ways we don't expect? This is yet another reminder that we should never lose hope. 
Even when our circumstances seem hopeless, God is sovereign and he is good. He will sustain his people and he will grow his church and nothing can stop this. The gospel is rejected and God directs Paul next door where he has fruitful ministry prepared. I have to believe that many of you, friends, find yourselves in a place like Paul here of confusion and fear. Whether that's related to a strained relationship, uncertainty about the future, financial stress, unexpected illness, or maybe you find yourself regularly overcome with fear about what's happening in the world socially and politically. Friend, let our text serve you this morning. Be encouraged as you see God's good hand in the circumstances of Paul. In the midst of his fear and confusion, God meets him with sufficient grace in a very particular way. So Paul has experienced rejection and reviling. He's experienced some fruitfulness in ministry. But obviously, there's still some struggle with fear because look at what we find in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. God speaks to Paul by means of a vision, and his words combine a sweet rebuke, a stirring mandate, and a strong promise. The sweet rebuke is this, do not be afraid. Again, think about all the factors that would have led Paul to battle fear. Uh, There was the obvious fear that he would personally suffer physical harm again. Certainly, he would have feared the safety of his brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Most of them knew in their faith. Paul may have also feared for the spiritual stability of the early churches. Felt some anxiety about leaving them and moving on too early. He would have wondered, should, should I stay longer? longer? Is it time to go? How do I interpret my circumstances here? Can you see how fear may have been pressing in on Paul? And so what happens? Well, the gentle shepherd appears to him in a vision and reminds him of something he already knows. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The Lord offers this sweet rebuke, but also a stirring mandate. Go on speaking and don't be silent. Now, brothers and sisters, connect this statement with the one that came right before. Paul was battling fear. Surely some of his fear was for the safety of the new believers. He's come to deeply love. And if I was the devil, here's one way I would attack Paul in this situation. 
I would want to convince him that if he would just shut up about the gospel, then all his problems would go away. Everyone, everybody would be safe. There would be no reason to fear. Just be quiet and everything will be okay. Friends, this is how the devil works. One of his chief goals is to keep Christians from speaking up. To keep them from declaring the good news concerning Jesus. To keep them from sharing with their friends and neighbors how their own lives have been radically changed by Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the evil one wants you to cower in fear as the culture around you slides toward hell and he wants to convince you that sharing Christ is not only a fool's errand but it only causes you and the people you care about unnecessary suffering so it'll be easier for everyone if you just stay quiet Redeemer family, hear the words of Jesus this morning. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Why? And how? Say, but I'm afraid. Well, here's the strong promise. Look at verse 10. I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. I, I love this. This is what my brother calls making sure your sermon application goes three layers deep. I thought it was something he came up with, but he stole it from Jesus, who does it perfectly here. Jesus begins by pointing out a wrong behavior that Paul must stop. And then he tells Paul the right behavior he must begin. But to avoid mere behavior modification, Jesus moves to a third layer. And that's the layer of motivation. This is where he deals with Paul's heart. What is it that motivates this change in behavior? What will drive out fear? And give Paul boldness to keep speaking up. It's this, the promise of Jesus. I'm with you. I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. What could be more motivating than this? These are heart-transforming truths. The presence of Jesus, I am with you. The protection of Jesus, no one will harm you. And the power of Jesus, I have many in this city who are my people. Oh, brothers and sisters, when you're facing fear, especially as it relates to your witness for Christ, when you're tempted in the face of increasing cultural pressure and mounting opposition to just keep quiet about Jesus, remember his words. I am with you. I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, 
for I have many in this city who are my people. There is so much that could be said about verse 10, but I want you to hear what John Stott wrote in reference to the final phrase of verse 10. For I have many in this city who are my people. Stott writes, Jesus promised Paul protection because many people in Corinth were Jesus' property. Given to him by the Father. Therefore, no one could stop them from hearing Christ's life-giving voice as he laid claim to their hearts through Paul's gospel. Friends, in our fear and confusion, as we are tempted to remain silent in our gospel witness, we need to be reminded that there are people in our neighborhoods and workplaces, people who are lost in sin at this very moment, blinded to the beauty of Christ, and yet they are already Jesus' possession. They're already His, given to Him by the Father. And the means by which God has sovereignly and kindly chosen to bring them to faith in Christ is through the feeble and frail witness of people like you and me. But we cannot and we must not be silent. After the gracious intervention of Jesus, notice verse 11, I read it before. And he stayed a year and six months. Well, of course he did. Teaching the word of God after he had been emboldened and empowered by Jesus, he stayed. What is it that moved Paul from fear and trembling to a boldness in teaching the word of God for another year and a half? in this very difficult place. To go back to the beginning, did he simply suck it up, clench his fist, grit his teeth, and resolve, I'm going to be a stronger and better follower of Jesus? No, brothers and sisters. What moved Paul from trembling to boldness is what sustained Ridley and Latimer as they faced the flames of martyrdom. It is the sure promise of Christ's sustaining presence. Let me offer you this as we close. Consider again the words of Jesus in verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Friends, this is a staggeringly wonderful reminder. I want to encourage you to hear the words of the risen Lord, do not be afraid, as more comforting than confrontational. I don't think this is the angry father who's fed up with a child and yells at him, 
Stop being afraid. No, this is the loving father who crawls into bed with his young son during a thunderstorm, puts his strong arm around his boy and whispers, Son, don't be afraid. I'm right here. And I won't leave you. You see, it's this reality that sustains a child of God in the most fearful and uncertain of circumstances. So hear the words of Jesus. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take your word by your spirit, plant it deep in our hearts and cause it to bear fruit. For the one who is here this morning, who's battling fear and confusion in a variety of ways, but maybe in particular as it relates to talking to someone about Christ. Father, would you remind them by means of your word that Jesus has promised them, I will be with you And I will not leave you. And that we would remember that we are indestructible. Under your sovereign hand as you have chosen to use us for your purposes. Father, Fill our hearts with faith. Drive out fear. Push us to be resourceful and to be bold so that we might engage in this great redemptive work that you have been and are doing of glorifying your name, of building your church, causing the gospel to spread to the ends of the earth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, this morning we will come to the Lord's table together. We will take of the bread and the cup. We will think deeply about Christ's broken body and his shed blood. Living, helping, keeping, loving, What a help in sorrow While the billows on me roll Even when my heart is breaking He, my comfort, helps my soul Say
scripture this morning is Acts 18 verses 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we have gathered here this morning to hear from you. It is not our desire to hear the opinion of any man. We believe that you have spoken to us and you continue to speak to us through your word, by your spirit. For the glory of your son. And so, Father, we ask that this would happen. That as we open the word and consider what you have revealed to us, that we would hear your voice. That our faith would be deepened. That some would be comforted. That some would be convicted. But that all of us would be changed. We pray this in the strong name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The reign of Queen Mary I, also known as Bloody Mary, only lasted from 1553 to 1558. Yet during that fairly short time, Protestants were severely 
persecuted. In fact, historians tell us that at least 300 Protestants were burned at the stake during this time. This morning, I want to tell you about just two of these English reformers. One was known for his preaching and the other for his scholarship. The preacher's name was Hugh Latimer, and the scholar was a man named Nicholas Ridley. On October 16th, 1555, after spending 18 months in a tower cell, Latimer and Ridley met at an Oxford stake. With Latimer in a frock and cap and Ridley in his bishop's gown, the two men talked and prayed together before they were fastened to the stake where they would burn. Ridley spoke up first. In an effort to strengthen his friend, he said, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. As the bundle of sticks caught fire beneath them, Latimer then began to speak. Raising his voice so Ridley could hear, he cried, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. In the face of persecution to the point of death, like so many other heroic believers, Latimer and Ridley did not remain silent. And through their bold witness, God did a miraculous work of reformation and revival. You see, friends, in every age, God has caused his gospel to spread, and he has done this through a variety of means. Sometimes it's through tremendous suffering. In fact, it's often through tremendous suffering. But it's also in other ways we We've seen this in the first 17 chapters of the book of Acts, haven't we? As the early church continues to face opposition, the power of God is displayed. He uses his people to spread his gospel to the ends of the earth. As we launch into chapter 18, I want you to see two ways the gospel spreads. Not the only two ways. But I want you to see two ways the gospel spreads. And I believe both of these will be very instructive and challenging to us. First, the gospel spread through the resourcefulness of ordinary Christians. The gospel spread through the resourcefulness of ordinary Christians. We see this in the first four verses. Let me read them again. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. On the heels of a very challenging time of gospel ministry in Athens, Paul travels about 50 miles to an influential Roman colony named Corinth. 
place known for cultural influence, but, but also for rampant immorality. In fact, Paul will later say in a letter to the Corinthian church that he arrived in Corinth in weakness and fear and much trembling. Friends, this is good for us to remember. The servants of Christ that we read about in Acts battled all the same emotions and feelings that we do. They they didn't arrive in new cities with capes on. Ready to boldly confront wickedness, topple false gods, and fight opponents of Jesus without ever being scared or feeling vulnerable. Now, Paul arrived in a new place, and the text tells us that he was afraid. He felt weak. He experienced all the physical and emotional symptoms of someone who was frightened by the task that God had called him to. So we rightly think of Acts as a book cataloging the acts of the Holy Spirit in the early church. But don't forget that this book also catalogs the acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of ordinary Christians. Real people like you and me who needed to be empowered and emboldened by the indwelling Holy Spirit. So we don't just see the work of the Holy Spirit when 3,000 people come to faith in Christ, but we also see the work of the Holy Spirit when someone like Paul doesn't give up and run away in fear when he's faced with opposition and difficulty. Brothers and sisters, as we study the book of Acts together, if you're being convicted about sharing your faith, or being pushed to engage in discipling relationships, or or you've been challenged about boldness in your witness for Jesus, don't. Don't walk out of here thinking that you just need to suck it up, clench your fists, grit your teeth, and do better. No, walk out of here more deeply dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God to accomplish in you what you cannot do for yourself. Let your confidence be in God. It's one of the lessons we take from this book and this text. He will strengthen you. He will sustain you. Now, I might be wrong about this, but I think one of the ways the devil has had great success in the present-day evangelical church, churches like ours, is by influencing us to think unbiblically about the work of the Holy Spirit. And he does it in a very particular way. Here's what I think is happening. If you're a church that's building new buildings, baptizing hundreds of people every Easter, if your worship services make you physically and emotionally feel a certain way, then the Holy Spirit is active in your church. But if members of your church are just increasing in love toward one another, getting more engaged in serving the body of Christ, 
slowly growing in their gospel boldness? If people who have struggled with sin for years are finally opening up and getting help? If believers are becoming more generous? You see, none of these things garner public attention and put you on Outreach Magazine's list of fastest growing churches. But brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Be encouraged by the thousands of ways the Holy Spirit is working in undeniable power. In ways that most people don't notice or might not notice for quite some time. But these are the things we see happening all throughout the book of Acts. This is what we find in our text this morning. The text tells us that Paul arrives in Corinth and meets a Jewish couple named Priscilla and Aquila. A couple that Paul will mention later in Romans 16 as, quote, fellow workers in Christ Jesus who had risked their lives. What Luke highlights here about Priscilla and Aquila is not just their hospitality, which interestingly is a work of the Spirit, isn't it? But look at verse 3. Paul was of the same trade with them, for they were tent makers by trade. So here are three people that share the same faith and the same trade. Now, why? Why does the text mention this? Is it simply an interesting tidbit? Is Luke just offering unnecessary details because that's what Luke does? It's just his style of writing. Well, here's what I I think is happening. I believe there's something important and instructive for us here, and it ties into what I've already mentioned. Friends, the initial spread of the gospel didn't happen by means of professional pastors and theologians. God used a variety of means and a variety of people. The Spirit moved in the hearts of normal Christians to do whatever they could to make Christ known and to see the gospel spread. Here's what I mean. In 1 Corinthians 9 and Galatians 6, Paul insists that the church meet the material needs of its teachers. But Personally, Paul was also willing to forego that right to offer God's grace free of charge. And here's why this is so important in Corinth. Listen to Dennis Johnson explain. Unlike the sophists and other professional orators, Paul refused to make his audience pay for his announcement of God's free gift. Instead, Paul supported himself and his team by hard work, providing an example of responsibility and generosity. Brothers and sisters, I want you to grasp what's happening here. First, we have Paul who wants to make sure he doesn't compromise the gospel message in any way at all. So he's forced to be very resourceful. He figures out a way to make enough money to go where God is calling him to go and do what God is calling him to do. And he's willing to work hard and work with his hands rather than create confusion around the gospel he's declaring. But it's not just Paul who's resourceful. It's also Priscilla and Aquila. Bible historians tell us that 
Priscilla and Aquila were, were, were very mobile people for this time. Moving from Rome to Corinth in response to an imperial edict, but then later moving from Corinth to Ephesus. And do you know that every time Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in Scripture, they're opening their home to someone? You see, the gospel is spreading in a most unexpected way. By an itinerant, tent-making preacher named Paul and a very hospitable tent-making couple named Priscilla and Aquila. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Hospitality and hard work. And notice how this team worked together, verses 3 and 4 again. And because Paul was... Of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So they all worked during the week, Priscilla and Aquila graciously housing Paul, and then every Sabbath, Paul would go to the synagogue and he would try to persuade Jews and Greeks to put their faith in Christ. Here's what I thought as I studied these first four verses of chapter 18. God uses unconventional means to make Christ known and to build his church. God has not used the same cookie-cutter formula to build his church throughout the centuries and around the world. Now, it has always been the same gospel. And it's always been the result of the Holy Spirit's miraculous work. And it's always involved the opening and explaining of the Word of God. But from the very beginning, God has used normal believers who are passionate about seeing sinners repent and believe and who are willing to be resourceful in the way they go about serving Christ in His church. Friends, let me challenge you to think outside the box. Let me challenge you to consider how the Holy Spirit might use your unique talents and experiences for the sake of Christ. How might he use your time, energy, and possessions for the spread of the gospel? There's an unhealthy mindset amongst many Christians that says the Gospel ministry is for the professionals, those who have been trained, those who have gone to seminary. Oh, friends, our study through the book of Acts should, should have corrected that thinking by now. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. I have some friends in North Carolina who begin asking these questions. They begin asking God to show them how they could show the love of Jesus to people in their community. And ultimately, God led them to begin opening up their home to women in crisis. And from this, a ministry was birthed called the Welcome Mission. Motivated to show hurting women the love of Christ, the Welcome Mission now supplies women with a home to live in free of charge. 
helps them get on their feet to live independently as productive members of society. They help women obtain jobs, childcare, education. But all of this is motivated by the love of Christ. And it started by just opening up their home to one woman in crisis. This is what they thought. We have a house. And we want to show the love of Christ. Let's pray that God would provide an opportunity. And he did. And he keeps doing this. What God is doing through the welcome mission is remarkable. And God may very well be calling some of you to do something similar. But the Holy Spirit also can use your ability to to work with your hands like Tim and Sue Bro. Or to help manage finances like Paul Gustafson. Or to greet visitors and connect them to others like Mike Flom. Brothers and sisters, this is the work of God by His Spirit through resourceful Christians who simply have a desire to make a gospel impact in the lives of real people. God has called every believer to be engaged in using the resources they have for his glory and the good of others. The gospel spread through the resourcefulness of ordinary Christians. Second, notice something we've seen again many times throughout our study of Acts. And here's the second main observation this morning. The gospel spread through the boldness of ordinary Christians. We see this in verses 5 through 11. There is nothing surprising about what we find recorded in verse 5. It's precisely what we've seen over and over again. Servants of Christ declaring the gospel of Christ to those who stand in desperate need of Christ. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. It's a great phrase. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Before Silas and Timothy arrived in Corinth, Paul was spending most days tent making, but he was preaching Christ in the synagogue every Sabbath. The way our text summarizes Paul's ministry in Corinth is to use that phrase, occupied with the word, or we could say as one theological reference tool puts it, He was wholly absorbed in preaching. And what is it that he was preaching? What was his message? Look at the end of verse 5. Testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. In fact, brothers and sisters, this is how Paul described his ministry in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, and, when, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is what he was doing. This was his ministry. Declare Jesus Christ. Paul's task was not to be impressive by worldly standards. His aim was not to display his intellect or wow audiences with his rhetorical prowess. 
No, Paul had one clear desire to present the good news concerning Jesus, to lay before his audience the reality that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the one sent by God to save his people from their sins. Paul's deepest desire was to see sinners turn to Christ in repentance and faith. That's why the text describes his efforts in verse 4 as trying to persuade This was an urgent appeal to sinners to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord. To bow in humility before the true King of Heaven, the risen and victorious Christ. Now what was the response of the Jews in particular? Look at verse 6. They opposed and reviled Him. They opposed and reviled Him. As we've seen so many times already, the gospel was rejected by the very people Jesus came to save. He came to his own, and his own received him not. In a case, we are tempted to overlook the seriousness of this rejection. Notice how the text describes Paul's response. It makes clear the profound tragedy that has taken place. Verse 6. He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Friends, this gesture by Paul is a sign of judgment. As he has patiently and faithfully pleaded with these Jews to believe in Christ, unveiling the majesty of Christ throughout the Old Testament scriptures, in response, these unbelieving Jews have not only rejected the gospel of Christ, but they have mocked and reviled the messenger of Christ as well. So Paul does something startling. It's similar to what he did back in chapter 13, but but notice the text again. He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. The act of shaking off his garment was to make sure, as one theologian wrote, that not one speck of dust from the synagogue would adhere to him. Paul is saying, I've done everything I can And no matter what I've tried, you have arrogantly and frighteningly rejected Jesus, and so I'm done. In essence, Paul is giving them what they want. If they want to reject Jesus, then they will receive his righteous judgment. Their blood will be on their own heads. Their eternal judgment before a holy God and their eternal torment will be their own choice. Brothers and sisters, this is so sad. But this is the heartbreaking reality for all who reject Christ. If they die in their rebellion, they will have no one to blame but themselves. Friend, if you're here this morning 
and you have never trusted Christ. You've never turned from your sin and guilt, believing that through Jesus' death and resurrection, you can have peace with God. I would beg you, as Paul begged the Jews gathered in the synagogue, believe and receive Jesus Christ. He loves you, and he gave himself for you. He will forgive your sin, and he will make you new. Don't reject him. Don't walk away. The rejection of the Jews turns Paul again to the Gentiles, and it sends him from the synagogue to a house next door. Look at verse 7. And remember that rejection never derails God's mission, it only redirects it. Verse 7, and he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Refusal and reviling gives way to success and fruitfulness. How often does God work in ways we don't expect? This is yet another reminder that we should never lose hope. Even when our circumstances seem hopeless, God is sovereign and he is good. He will sustain his people and he will grow his church and nothing can stop this. Gospel is rejected and God directs Paul next door where he has fruitful ministry prepared. I have to believe that many of you friends find yourselves in a place like Paul here of confusion and fear. Whether that's related to a strained relationship Uncertainty about the future, financial stress, unexpected illness. Or maybe you find yourself regularly overcome with fear about what's happening in the world socially and politically. Friend, let our text serve you this morning. Be encouraged as you see God's good hand in the circumstances of Paul. In the midst of his fear and confusion, God meets him with sufficient grace in a very particular way. So Paul has experienced rejection and reviling. He's experienced some fruitfulness in ministry, but obviously there's still some struggle with fear because look at what we find in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking And do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. God speaks to Paul by means of a vision, and his words combine a sweet rebuke a stirring mandate, and a strong promise. The sweet rebuke is this. Do not be afraid. 
Again, think about all the factors that would have led Paul to battle fear. Uh, There was the obvious fear that he would personally suffer physical harm again. Certainly, he would have feared the safety of his brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Most of them knew in their faith. Paul may have also feared for the spiritual stability of the early churches. Felt some anxiety about leaving them and moving on too early. He would have wondered, should should I stay longer? Longer, is it time to go? How do I interpret my circumstances here? Can you see how fear may have been pressing in on Paul? And so what happens? Well, the gentle shepherd appears to him in a vision and reminds him of something he already knows. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The Lord offers this sweet rebuke, but also a stirring mandate. Go on speaking and don't be silent. Now, brothers and sisters, connect this statement with the one that came right before. Paul was battling fear. Surely some of his fear was for the safety of the new believers he's come to deeply love. And if I was the devil, here's one way I would attack Paul in this situation. I would want to convince him that if he would just shut up about the gospel, then all his problems would go away. Everybody would be safe. There would be no reason to fear. Just be quiet and everything will be okay. Friends, this is how the devil works. One of his chief goals is to keep Christians from speaking up. To keep them from declaring the good news concerning Jesus. To keep them from sharing with their friends and neighbors how their own lives have been radically changed by Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the evil one wants you to cower in fear as the culture around you slides toward hell. And he wants to convince you that sharing Christ is not only a fool's errand, but it only causes you and the people you care about unnecessary suffering. So it'll be easier for everyone if you just stay quiet. Redeemer family, hear the words of Jesus this morning. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Why? And how? But I'm afraid. Well, here's the strong promise. Look at verse 10. I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. I, I love this. This is what my brother calls making sure your sermon application goes three layers deep. I thought it was something he came up with, but he stole it from Jesus, who does it perfectly here. Jesus begins by pointing out a wrong behavior that Paul must stop. And then he tells Paul the right behavior he must begin. 
But to avoid mere behavior modification, Jesus moves to a third layer. And that's the layer of motivation. This is where he deals with Paul's heart. What is it that motivates this change in behavior? What will drive out fear and give Paul boldness to keep speaking up? It's this, the promise of Jesus. I'm with you. I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. What could be more motivating than this? These are heart-transforming truths. The presence of Jesus, I am with you. The protection of Jesus, no one will harm you. And the power of Jesus, I have many in this city who are my people. Oh, brothers and sisters, when you're facing fear, especially as it relates to your witness for Christ, when you're tempted in the face of increasing cultural pressure and mounting opposition to just keep quiet about Jesus, remember his words. I am with you. I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. There is so much that could be said about verse 10, but I want you to hear what John Stott wrote in reference to the final phrase of verse 10. For I have many in this city who are my people. Stott writes, Jesus promised Paul protection because many people in Corinth were Jesus' property. Given to him by the Father. Therefore, no one could stop them from hearing Christ's life-giving voice as he laid claim to their hearts through Paul's gospel. Friends, in our fear and confusion, as we are tempted to remain silent in our gospel witness, we need to be reminded that there are people in our neighborhoods and workplaces, people who are lost in sin at this very moment, blinded to the beauty of Christ, and yet they are already Jesus' possession. They're already His, given to Him by the Father. And the means by which God has sovereignly and kindly chosen to bring them to faith in Christ is through the feeble and frail witness of people like you and me. But we cannot and we must not be silent. After the gracious intervention of Jesus, notice verse 11, I read it before. And he stayed a year and six months. Well, of course he did. Teaching the word of God after he had been emboldened and empowered by Jesus 
He stayed. What is it that moved Paul from fear and trembling to a boldness in teaching the word of God for another year and a half in this very difficult place? To go back to the beginning, did he simply suck it up, clench his fist, grit his teeth, and resolve, I'm going to be a stronger and better follower of Jesus? No, brothers and sisters. What moved Paul from trembling to boldness is what sustained Ridley and Latimer as they faced the flames of martyrdom. It is the sure promise of Christ's sustaining presence. So let me offer you this as we close. Consider again the words of Jesus in verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Friends, this is a staggeringly wonderful reminder. I want to encourage you to hear the words of the risen Lord, do not be afraid as more comforting than confrontational. I don't think this is the angry father who's fed up with a child and yells at him, stop being afraid. No, this is the loving father who crawls into bed with his young son during a thunderstorm puts his strong arm around his boy and whispers, Son, don't be afraid. I'm right here. And I won't leave you. You see, it's this reality that sustains a child of God in the most fearful and uncertain of circumstances. So hear the words of Jesus. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Let's pray.